Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. My guest is Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of several books, including The Management of Savagery. And today we are talking about the news that many people will know by now that Max was recently arrested. Uh, this was in connection with a protest that occurred at the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. five months ago. Max was arrested uh, on a five-month-old charge. He was held for uh, 36 hours without being able to speak to a lawyer. And now he is out and talking about his case, but there is limited information in what he can say because the case is still ongoing. With that, Max Blumenthal, welcome to Pushback. Many people want to know how you're doing. Thanks, Aaron. And uh, thanks, everyone, for all the solidarity and support that you've shown me and that you've shown the other... Um, that you've shown embassy protectors who are uh, also facing trials. Uh, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm pretty. I'm pretty fatigued right now, um, but uh, I'm really encouraged by all the support I've gotten from so many quarters. And um, you know, I'm totally confident about uh, my case because it's based on a phony, bogus trumped up, and that's with a capital T, trumped up, uh, mendacious fabrication of a lie. And there is, ab is absolutely baseless. The charge against me is absolutely baseless. Um, and I think everybody out there understands that. And so for anyone who's not familiar, basically there was a protest at the Venezuelan embassy, uh, after the Trump administration, uh, which you mentioned, uh, started a coup in Venezuela, uh, Venezuelan diplomats were ordered out of the country. The government of Venezuela offered the embassy to Code Pink and asked the Code Pink group to protect it. Um, this happened back in the spring in April and May. Uh, you were there covering it. You've also been covering uh, the coup itself extensively, Max, I think more than pretty much any other journalist uh, in this country. Now, I wouldn't go that far, but, you know, we've been at the forefront at the gray zone of covering it. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to put myself above anyone else, but it's very, you know, we've distinguished ourselves for sure. And it, this is clearly, a, it appears to me to be a case of revenge, political persecution for the work that we've done. Uh, and, you know, of course, our colleague Anya Parampil was inside the embassy during the siege. And you can't tell us too much about what you're actually being charged with and what the, what, what the circumstances were, but just to be clear that the, this charge against you uh, concerns your presence uh, at, the, at that protest outside, right? Well, I'm, I'm charged with simple assault. It's a false charge. Uh, as far as I know, simple assault is a misdemeanor. Um, it is not assault and battery. Um, but I didn't assault anybody. I was not a party to any violence. And uh, this lie was concocted uh, by the Venezuelan opposition for, um, I think, two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, you know, as I said before, we've been at the forefront of exposing the Venezuelan opposition, the violent right-wing Venezuelan opposition, uh, for their corruption. Uh, the gray zone has forced Ricardo Hausman, Juan Guaido's ambassador to the Inter-American Development Bank, to resign. That was thanks to Anya Parampil's reporting. Um, Anya's also gone further than uh, 
pretty much the whole U.S. media and exposing the Crystal X saga and how Juan Guaido's gaggle is seeking to liquidate Venezuela's most valuable foreign asset in in Citgo. She she predicted that was going to happen, and now it's happening before our eyes. Uh, we I, I exposed a secret meeting held at the Center for Strategic and International Studies where members of Guaido's team and foreign governments and uh, former U.S. military officials and current U.S. officials uh, met to uh, discuss a military invasion of Venezuela, which caused an international incident that was brought up by Venezuela's uh, UN ambassador, Samuel Moncada, at the UN. Um, you know, we've been, uh, we, we also exposed in English, at least, uh, we were the first English publication to expose the lie pushed by Juan Guaido and several um, heads of state from the Lima Group that Maduro's security forces burned the humanitarian aid convoy that Guaido and the USAID attempted to ram across the Venezuelan border on February 23rd. And so, and of course, the New York Times didn't credit us with that, but we were first. So, you know, at every step of the way, we've been um, destroying their whole narrative. And, you know, five months after the embassy protection collective was defending international law inside the Venezuelan embassy at the invitation of the Venezuelan government besieged by violent right-wing Venezuelan opposition fanatics. And when I say violent, I mean their violence has been very well documented and none of them were arrested. Five months after that, a team of DC police show up at my door to act on, to carry out a warrant for what is called simple assault. And you know, I was in prison for 36 hours, as you mentioned. And at the end, a lot of people I was in prison with who also were charged with simple assault got out with no paper, meaning they had no charges. Corrections officer told me, um, simple assault. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, there's the, that, that always gets dropped. But so far, it hasn't been dropped. It looks like the government wants to take this to trial. And Ben Rubenstein, the brother of Alex Rubenstein, another journalist who is embedded inside the embassy, who has also been at the forefront of documenting the Venezuelan opposition's violence and extremism and, and the racism they displayed and the sexism they displayed around the embassy. Uh, ben Rubenstein was also arrested. He was arrested back in May. And, you know, he's facing a trial also for simple assault. So it's highly unusual. The whole thing is highly unusual. It's an obvious case of political persecution, and it should be a source of outrage. But of course, we've heard nothing from the kind of press NGOs. I guess Press Freedom Tracker. I just saw them say that uh, you know I wasn't I wasn't involved in uh, reporting at the time, um, so I was you know I, I don't count. They said something like that on Twitter in a response to Margaret Kimberly. So it's, you know, it's revealing to see the response, but it's also really encouraging to see the kind of really organic grassroots solidarity that I'm getting. Well, you were involved in reporting at the time, uh, broadly, because you were covering that protest. At the time, specifically of the incident, you were around when some food was trying to be delivered inside, right? Well, all I can say is that I'm completely innocent. The charges are baked, they're phony, they're fake. Um, I didn't do anything violent anywhere, and um, the facts are going to speak for themselves. If the government wants to take this phony sham of a lie to court, the facts are going to speak for themselves, and they're going to speak very loudly. 
Was there a reason why they didn't release you the day of your arrest? You were arrested early in the morning, yet you got out very late the next afternoon. Uh, well, there, there, there are two aspects to this, Aaron. The first aspect is the way that the, that the arrest warrant was executed and constructed. And it appears to me like the government constructed it in a way that um, was um, vindictive and even sadistic. I just took a closer look at the warrant. It lists me as armed and dangerous. Uh, that That's just absurd. I mean, there's no reason to think that I would be armed and dangerous. And what they did by listing me as armed and dangerous was ensure that there would be a large team of police officers surrounding my house, then demanding entry and ready to pretty much take me down physically uh, they demanded entry to my house, and when I said, "What are you, what are you doing here? What's going on?" You know, they threatened to break the door down, and they would have break broke my door down with an eye bar if I hadn't let them in right away. So then I had a team of police officers in my living room. Um, so I think, you know, that component of it is the result of vindictiveness by a government which has been used um, pretty willingly as a tool of revenge by a lying, violent right-wing Venezuelan opposition. They could have called me and told me, you have a warrant. Um, I would have turned myself in because I have nothing to fear, and then I would have been able to go to my arraignment. But instead, what they did was uh, you know, give me a few, a few minutes to unlace my shoes so I can't like hang myself in prison like Jeffrey Epstein supposedly did. Um, what, you know, and it's pretty obvious when you're in the cell that it would be hard to do what he is said to have done. Anyway, they gave me a few minutes to unlace my shoes and luckily I put on a coat and then I left in my pajamas with a coat on. I mean, I was glad I had this coat because it was, I was in, it was so cold for so much of the time and you're basically left to languish on a metal slab for like 14 hours in a tiny cell. Um, so it also served as a blanket. Um, but, uh, you know, from then on I was treated, I was given the same treatment as my neighbors here in Southeast DC who, you know, I drove around in a paddy wagon where I was holding onto a rope with, um, handcuffs to prevent, my, prevent myself from being kind of tossed around in the back of a paddy wagon. And, you know, they proceeded to just pick up various people in my neighborhood for the pettiest of crimes. I mean, a young woman was picked up crying because she had had a fight with her boyfriend. Um, another guy was picked up who, you know, became my cellmate. And um, it was because of a minor parole violation and which carries some kind of mandatory sentence. So he was really upset when he got in because he had just had a new daughter and he's going to miss Christmas with her. And the, we were taken to the seventh district down here in Southeast where everyone who asked for a phone call was denied. That's where you're supposed to get a phone call. So I couldn't call a lawyer. Luckily, um, you know, uh, you know, friends of mine and neighbors knew that I'd been arrested. So, you know, people were told, but if that hadn't happened, there would have been no way for anyone to know that I was in prison. And then once I was, then I was transferred again in the paddy wagon to uh, central jail, to DC jail, which, and uh, there I was again denied a phone call. Um, I asked if they would, 
you know, make a call for me. And they said no. And I basically kind of languished there for the next, um, I don't know, 30 hours or so in various cages um, and uh, different forms of uh, restraint. The second component of how I was treated, Hmm. that's how poor people in Washington, D.C. and across America are typically treated in the criminal justice system, um, where it's just kind of people were just all denied phone calls. They were all shackled for long periods. Uh, We were held in cages in extremely cold temperatures for long periods. And, uh, you know, one of the complaints I heard constantly from my fellow inmates in this, who are all in jail for the pettiest crimes you can imagine, um, who are all just basically put into this system of endless uh, surveillance, who are taken in and out for DNA swabs and urine tests, uh, almost sort of without their consent, is that this is modern day slavery. That's what they called it. Many of them were wearing ankle bracelets. And those ankle bracelets are, of course, generating profit for whatever company manufactures them. They're under constant watch. So, you know, the second component, besides how the government constructed my warrant, Um, in this vindictive fashion, is that I got to see how mostly poor, mostly black men are treated in the prison system in a very vivid way. And of course, we all know about it, we read about it, but when you see it up close and you're standing in a cell with, in a a cage with 50 shackled men, uh, it takes on a different dimension. Um, And obviously I, I didn't have my, I didn't have any belongings, so it's very impossible to photograph that. But I think anyone would have been shocked to see a photograph of anything that I witnessed in there because uh, it would call up some of the darkest historical episodes in this country, which are ongoing. Max, I want to ask you about the media response here or the lack thereof. So you have some outlets, you know, the major ones and even some progressive ones too, saying nothing about your arrest. Then you also have some people uh, openly cheering it, uh, and I, you know this went down mostly on Twitter, where I saw journalists, uh, media colleagues of ours, uh, people who do not share your views on Syria, uh, people who basically supported the uh, proxy war in Syria that you helped expose and wrote so much about. Uh, those people actually voicing uh, applause at the sight of you being detained, and I'm wondering your thoughts on that yeah i did see some of that i mean first to address the silence i don't think anyone's obligated to speak about me but uh you know silence in some cases is revealing and i think you know in some cases it's self-censorship um one person who did speak up who's someone i've never met who you know may not agree with me all the time um, is was Jeet here, who is an editor at the New Republic and is now at the Nation, and uh, he got kind of ratioed for doing that. Um, it's just like, how can you say this about him? He's he's evil, uh, you know. He's an Assadist and a whatever supports Maduro and all this whatever they say about me. Um, but you know, they're supposed to be even if you don't, even if you think that I'm that my reporting is is toxic or whatever, there's supposed to be a higher principle here. And it's a principle that's only applied by those elements to in to countries that the US wants to topple and destabilize. 
And so I was thinking that, it, you know, for me to get their sympathy, I probably am going to have to change my citizenship to Russian and denounce Putin. Because as is, uh, they don't seem to actually believe in democracy, uh, leaving aside the fact that this charge against me is a complete and utter lie and fabrication. They don't believe that someone is innocent until proven guilty. They are just asserting blatantly that I'm guilty and they want to see me in prison. And these elements are part of a wider campaign of persecution, demonization, uh, denigration uh, that I've faced for years, particularly since I uh, published a two-part expose on the white helmets, um, which has been so clearly vindicated by recent events. And, you know, it's about attacking my colleagues as well and the, 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 the gray zone itself. They don't just want to, I mean, first of all, they can't debate. They can't debate us. When, when they do, even when I go soft on them, it doesn't work out very well for them. They're not interested in open debate. And they're not just interested in discrediting me. They're interested in my imprisonment. And that's so revealing. I mean, it really shows them, these people who support, you know, the U.S. supposedly promoting democracy abroad, uh, to be the real authoritarians who want to jail their ideological enemies. And so, I mean, it just you just take a look at that thread, the comments on Jeet Heer's uh, Twitter post where he just simply says, if you care about press freedom, you should be outraged about this. He didn't say, you know, you have to support Max Blumenthal's journalism. And he just got hammered for that by, you know, the usual suspects. Um, that should be, I mean, this is a real mask lifting moment, but so is the jailing of Julian Assange, who's facing something so much worse than me. Um, he's really in a fight for his life. If he's extradited to the United States and put on trial here and put in a supermax prison, that's the end of the, that's the end of journalism as we know it. Um, but I think, you know, it's already kind of over. We're in an information war and m most of the journalists who have who have been covering Venezuela, Syria, Nicaragua, Korea, the areas that of the world that are sort of friction points for US empire, where there's a regime change operation ongoing, um, now Bolivia, they see themselves as um, agents or, or activists in this information war, um, providing amplification for the narrative of the US as it seeks to assert itself abroad. And uh, there's really very little gray area in between. And so, you know, we're considered on the other side and we've been targets for years, um, but now the stakes are so high that you have people actually cheering on my arrest on a false charge. I just couldn't think of anything more revealing or repellent. We're going to wrap, Max, but uh, finally, how can people support you going forward as, you know, it looks very much likely like the government is taking this prosecution ahead, that they're going to press this case? Yeah, I mean, the, again, I mean, anyone who's watching this, who's spoken up, I really just want to express my gratitude. It's been incredible to see the solidarity, and I really want to urge support for the embassy uh, for the four protectors. Um, David Paul, Adrian Pine, Margaret Flowers, and Kevin Zeese, who are facing a year in prison um, for being the last four inside the embassy who are on the side of the law, defending international law 
against a brazen regime change operation that violated not only the Vienna Conventions, but which seeks to essentially place an entire sovereign country with a UN recognized government in the hands of a white collar mafia. Um, so it's important to support them as well. Um, it's important to speak up for other journalists who are really, I think, you know, like Julian Assange, whose case I think will define the future of press freedom and journalism. Um, that's the defining case. Uh, we should think about whistleblowers and people like Jeremy Hammond, um, who's still being persecuted in prison. Um, and, you know, to keep making noise, I'm, if I'm going to go to trial, then I'll be updating about it. And, you know, I ask for everyone's support, um, you know, inside and outside the courtroom, if the government wants to take this gigantic sham that they constructed to trial. If you're in media, if you're in alternative media, um, if you're in activism, you know, you have to see these, these uh, acts of persecution for what they are. What they want to do is to exhaust us. They want to frighten our friends to not follow in our footsteps. And we have to double down. We have to just simply do more. The best way of defying this kind of persecution is to simply continue doing the journalism we've been doing. And so that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to follow your lead. Uh, Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of many books, including his latest, The Management of Savagery. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Aaron.